Chapter 1 Continued of Rainy Week by Eleanor Hallowell Abbott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Glenn Coster, Jr. Chapter 1 Continued May always comes so amazingly soon after February, so infinitely much sooner than anyone dares hope that it would. Peering into snow-smeared shop windows some rather particularly bleak morning, you notice with half a contemptuous sort of amusement a precocious display of ginghams and straw hats. And before you can turn around to tell anybody about it, tulips have happened, and it's May. More than seemingly extravagantly early this year, May dawned also with extravagant lavishness. Through every prismatic color of the world, sunshine sang to the senses. What shall I do, fretted my husband, if this perfection lasts? The question indeed was a leading one. The scenery for rainy week did not arrive until the afternoon of the 8th. From his frowning survey of bright lawns, gleaming surf, radiant sky, I saw my husband turn suddenly with a little gasping sigh that might have meant anything. What is it? I cried. Look, he said. It's come. Silently, shoulder to shoulder, we stood and watched the gigantic storm bales roll into the sky, packed in fleece, corded with ropes of mist, gorgeous, portentous, tomorrow's rain. It is not many hosts and hostesses, under like circumstances, who turned to each other as we did with a single whoop of joy. An hour later, hatless and coatless in the lovely warm May twilight, we stood by the larch tree waiting for our guests. We liked to have them sup in town at their own discretion or indiscretion that first night, and all arrived together reasonably sleek and sleepy and totally unacquainted on the eight o'clock train. But the larch tree has always been our established point for meeting the rainy week people. Conceding cordially the truth of the American aphorism that while charity may perfectly legitimately begin at home, hospitality should begin at the railroad station. We personally have proved beyond all doubt that for our immediate interest at stake, dramatic effect begins at the entrance to our driveway. Yet it is always with mingled feelings of trepidation and anticipation that we first sense the blurry rumble of motor wheels on the highway. If the station bus were only blue or green, but palest oak? and shuddered like a roll-top desk, spilling out strange personalities at you like other people's ideas brimming from pigeonholes. For some unfathomable reason of constraint this night, no one was talking when the bus arrived. Shy, stiff-spined, non-communicative, still questioning, perhaps. Who was who, and what was what? These seven guests, who by the return ride a week hence, might even be mated, such things have happened, or once more not speaking to each other. This also has happened, loomed now like so many dummies in the gloom. Why, hello, we cried, jumping to the rear step of the bus as it slowed slightly at the curb 
and thrusting our faces as genially as possible into the dark, unresponsive doorway. Hello, rallied someone. I think it was Rollins. Whoever it was, he seemed to be having a terrible time trying to jerk his suitcase across other people's feet. Oh, is this where you live? questioned George Keats's careful voice from the shadows. The faintest possible tinge of relief seemed to be in the question. Here? brightened somebody inside. A window fastener clicked, a shutter crashed, an aperture opened, and everybody all at once, scenting the sea, crowded to stare out where the gray dusk merging into gray rocks merged in turn with the gray rocks into a low rambling gray fieldstone house, silhouetted with indescribable weirdness at the moment against that delicate, pale gold, French drawing room sort of sky cluttered so incongruously with the clump of dark clouds. The road doesn't go any farther? puzzled someone. There's no other stopping place, you mean? Just a little bit further along? This is the end? The last house? The... High from a clifftop somewhere, a seabird lifted a single eerie cry. Oh, how... how dramatic, gasped somebody. Reaching out to nudge my husband's hand, I collided instead with the dog's cold nose. Followingly, apparently the same impulse, my husband's hand met the dog's startling nose at almost the same instant. Except for a second's loss of balance on the bus step, neither of us resented the incident. But it was my husband who recovered his conversation as well as his balance first. Oh, you, Miss Davies, he called blithely into the bus. What's your palm's name? Nosegay? Skip about? Crosspatch? What? Lucky for you, we knew your propensity for arriving with pets. The kennel's all ready, and the cat sent away. In the nearest shadow of all, it was almost as though one heard an ego bristle. I beg your pardon, but the Pomeranian is mine, affirmed Claude Killenworth's unmistakable voice with what seemed like quite unnecessary hauteur. What the deuce is the matter with everybody? whispered my husband. With a jerk and a bump, the bus grazed a big boulder and landed us wheezingly at our own front door. As expeditiously as possible, my husband snatched up the lantern that gleamed from the doorstep and, brandishing it on high, challenged the shadowy occupants of the bus to disembark and proclaim themselves. Ann Walter stepped down first. As vague as the shadows, she merged from her black-garbed figure faded unoutlined into the shadow of the porch. For an instant only, the uplifted lantern flashed across her strange, stark face and then went crashing down into a shiver of glass on the gravelly path at my husband's feet. And Stolter! I heard him gasp. My husband is not usually a fumbler either with hand or tongue. In the brightening flare of the flashlight that someone thrust into his hands, his face showed frankly rattled. Ann Walter, I prompted him hastily. 
For the infinitesimal fraction of a second, our eyes met. I hope my smile was as quick. What is the matter with everybody? I said. With extravagant exuberance, my husband jumped to help the rest of our guests alight. Hi there, everybody. He greeted each new face in turn as it emerged somewhat hump-shouldered and vague through the door of the bus into the flare of his lantern light. Poor Mr. Rollins, of course, tumbled out. Fastidiously, George Keats illustrated how a perfect exit from a bus should be made. Suitcase, hat box, English ulster, everything a model of its kind. Even the constraint of his face, absolutely perfect. With the Pomeranian clutched rather drastically under one arm, Claude Killingworth followed Keats. All the time, of course, you knew that it was a Pomeranian who was growling, but from the frowning irritability of young Killingworth's eyes, one might almost have concluded that the boy was a ventriloquist and the Pom a puppet instead of a puppy. Her name is Pet, he announced somewhat succinctly to my husband, and she sleeps in no kennel. A trifle paler than I had expected, but inexpressibly young, lovely, palpitant, and altogether adorable, the May girl sprang into my vision and my arms. Her heart was beating like a wild bird's. With the incredibility of their miracle still stamped almost embarrassingly on their faces, our bride and groom of a week completed the list. It wasn't just the material physical fact that love was consummated that gave them that look, but the spiritual amazement that love was consummatable. No other look in life ever compasses it, ever duplicates it. It made my husband quite perceptibly quicken the tempo of his jocity. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, he enumerated. All good guests come straight from heaven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, he repeated, as though to be perfectly sure. Seven? Why, why, what the... He interrupted himself suddenly. With frank bewilderment, I saw him jump back to the rear step of the bus and flash his light into the farthest corner, where the huddled form of an eighth person loomed weirdly from the shadows. It was a man, a young man, and at first glimpse he was quite dead, but on second glimpse merely drunk, hopelessly, helplessly, sodden drunk, with his hat gone, his collar torn away, his haggard face sagging like some broken thing against his breast. With attention suddenly relaxed, a faint sigh seemed to slip from the group outside. In the crowding faces that surrounded us instantly, it must have been something in Jan Killenworth's expression, or in the Pomeranian's, that made my husband speak just exactly as he did. With his arms held under the disheveled, uncouth figure, he turned quite abruptly and scanned the faces of his guests. And whose little pet may this be? he asked trenchantly. From the shadow of the port cure, somebody laughed. It was rather a vacuous little laugh. Sheer nerves. Rollins, I think. 
Framed in the half-shuttered window of the bus, the May girl's face pinked suddenly like a flare of apple blossoms. He, he came with me, said the May girl. No matter how informally one chooses to run his household, there is almost always some one rule of notice on which the smoothness of that informality depends. In our household, that rule seems to be that no explanations shall ever be asked either in the darkness or by artificial light, it being the supposition, I infer, that most things explain themselves by daylight. Perfectly, cordially, I concede that they usually do, but some nights are a great deal longer to wait through than others. It wasn't on this particular night that anyone refused to explain, but that nobody even had time to think of explaining. The young stranger was in a bad way, not delirium tremens or anything like that, but a fearful alcoholic disorganization of some sort. The men were running up and down the stairs half the night. Their voices rang through the hall in short, sharp orders to each other. No one else spoke above a whisper. With silly comforts like talcum powder and hot water bottles and sweet chocolate and new novels, I put the women to bed. Their comments, if not explanatory, were at least reasonably characteristic. From a swirl of pink chiffon and my best blankets, with her ear cocked quite frankly toward a step on the stairs, her eyes like stars, her mouth all a kiss, the bride reported her own emotions in the matter. No, no one, of course, had ever believed for a moment, the bride assured me, that the drunken man was one of the guests. And yet, when he didn't get off at any of the stops and this house was so definitely announced as the end of the road, why it did, of course, make one feel just a little bit nervous, flushed the bride, perfectly, irrelevantly, as the creak on the stairs drew near. Ann Walter registered only a very typical indifference. A great many different kinds of things, she affirmed, were bound to happen in any time as long as a day, one simply had to get used to them, that was all. She was unpacking her somber black traveling bag as she spoke, and the first thing she took out from it was a man's gay, green-plaited golf cap. It looked strange with the rest of her things. All the rest of her things were black. I never thought I would succeed in putting the May girl to bed. With a sweet sort of stubbornness, she resisted every effort. The first time I went back, she was kneeling at her bedside to say her forgotten prayers. The second time I went back, she had just jumped up to write a letter to her grandfather. Something about the sea, she affirmed, had made her think of her grandfather. It was a long time, she acknowledged, since she had thought of her grandfather. He was very old, she argued, and she didn't want to delay any longer about writing. Slim and frank as a boy in her half-adjusted blanket wrapper dishable, she smiled up at me through the amazing mop of gold hair, with the gray streak floating like a cloud across the sunshine of her face. She was very nervous. She must have been nervous. It darkened her eyes to two blue sapphires. It quickened her breath like the breath of a young fawn running. 
And would I please tell her how to spell oceanic? She implored me, as though answering intuitively the unspoken question on my lips. She shrugged blame from her as some exotic songbird must have shrugged its first snow. No, she didn't know who the young man was. Truly, as far as she knew, she had never, never seen the young man before. O-C-E-A-N-I-C, was it? The rain was not actually delivered until one o'clock in the morning. Just before dawn, I heard the storm bales rip in sheets of silver and points of steel with rage and roar and a surf like a picture in a Sunday supplement. The weather broke loose. Thank heaven the morning was so dark that no one appeared in the breakfast room an instant before the appointed hour of nine. George Keats, of course, appeared exactly at nine, very trim, very distingué, in a marvelously tailored gray flannel suit, and absolutely possessed to make his own coffee. Claude Killingworth's morning manner was very frankly peevish. His room had a tin roof, and he hardly thought he should be able to stand it. Rain? Did you call this rain? It was a flood. Were there any movie palaces near? And were they open mornings? And he'd like an underdone chop, please, for the Pomeranian. And it wasn't his dog anyway, darn the little fool, but belonged to the girl who had the studio next to his, and she was possessed with the idea that a week at the shore would put the pup on its feet again. Women were so blamed temperamental. If there was one thing in the world that he hated, it was temperamental people. And all the time he was talking, he wasn't making anything with his hands, because he wasn't thinking anything instead. And how in creation, he scolded, did we ever happen to build a house out on the granite edge of nowhere? How did we stand it? How? Hi there. Wait a moment. God, what form! That wave with the tortured top. Hush! Don't speak. Please leave him alone. Breakfast? Not yet. When a fellow could watch. Ah, uh, a thing like that. For heaven's sake, pass him that frothy edge napkin. Did anybody mind if he tore it while he watched that other froth tear? Dear, honest, ardent, red-blooded Paul Brinswick came down so frankly interested in the special device by which our house gutters took care of such amazing torrents of water that everybody felt perfectly confident all at once that no bride of his would ever suffer from leaky roofs or any other mechanical defect. Paul Brinswick liked the rain just as much as he liked the gutters, and he liked the sea, and he liked the house, and he liked the sky, and he liked everything. Even when a clumsy waitress joggled coffee into his grapefruit, he seemed to like that just as much as he liked everything else. Paul Brinswick was a real bridegroom. I am not, I believe, a particularly envious person, and have never, as far as I knew, begrudged another woman her youth, or her beauty, or her talent, or her wealth. But if it ever came to a chance of swapping facial expressions, just once in my life, some very rainy morning, 
I wish I could look like a bridegroom. But the expression on the bride's face was distinctly worried. Joy worried. Any woman who had ever been a bride could have read the expression like an open book. Victoria Brinswick had not counted on rain. Moonlight, of course, was what she had counted on. Moonlight, day and night in all probability, and long, sweet, soft stretches of beach, and cavernous rocks, and incessantly mirthful escapades of escape from the crowd. But to be shut up all day long in a house full of strange people, with a bridegroom who after all was still more or less of a strange bridegroom? The panic in her face was almost ghastly. The panic of the perfectly happy. The panic of the person hanging over-ecstatically on the absolute perfection of a singer's prolonged high note, driven all at once to wonder if this is the moment when the note must break. To be all alone and bored on a rainy day is no more than anyone would expect. But to be with one's lover and have the day prove dull? If God in the terrible uncertainty of him should force even one dull day into the miracle of their life together? Ann Walter, dragging down to breakfast just a few minutes late, had not noticed, especially it seemed, that the day was rainy. She met my husband's eyes as she met the eyes of her fellow guests, calmly, indifferently, and with perfect sophistication. If his presence or personality was in any way a shock to her, she certainly gave no sign of it. The May girl didn't appear till very late. So late, indeed, that everyone started to tease her for being such a sleepyhead. Her face was very flushed, her hair in a riot of gold and gray, her appetite like the appetite of a young cannibal. Across the rim of her cocoa cup, she hurled a lovely defiance at her traducers. Sleepyhead, she exulted. Not much. Hadn't she been up since six? and out on the beach, and all over the rocks, way, way out to the farthest point. There was such a heavenly suit of yellow oilskins in her closet. She hoped it wasn't cheeky of her, but she just couldn't resist them. And the fishes, the poor, poor little bruised fishes, dashed up by that terrible surf on the rocks. She thought she never, never would get them all put back. They kept coming and coming so, every new wave, flopping, flopping. Rollins's breakfast had been sent to his room. You yourself wouldn't have wanted to spring Rollins on anyone quite so early in the day. And with my best breakfast tray, my second best china, and sherry and the grapefruit, there was no reason, certainly, why Rollins in any way should feel discriminated against. Surely, as far as Rollins knew, every guest was breakfasting in bed. Even without Rollins, there was quite enough uncertainty in the air. Everyone was talking, talking about the morning. I mean, not about yesterday morning, most certainly not about yesterday night. Babble, chatter, drawl, laughter, the voices rose and fell. Breakfast indeed was just about over when a faint stir on the threshold made everybody look up. 
It was the drunken stranger of the night before. Heaven knows he was sober enough now, but very shaky. Yet collarless as he was and still unshaven, our men had evidently not expected quite so early a resuscitation. He loomed up now in the doorway, with a certain tragic poise and dignity that was by no means unattractive. Why, hello, said everybody. Hello, said the stranger. With a palpable flex of muscle, he leaned back against the wainscoting of the door and narrowed his haggard eyes to the cheerful scene before him. I don't know where I am, he said, or how I got here, or who you are. I can't seem to remember anything. The faintly sheepish smile that quickened suddenly in his eyes, if not distinctly humorous, was at least plucky. I think I must have had a drink, he said. I wouldn't wonder, grinned Paul Brinswick. You are perfectly right conceded George Keats. Have another, suggested my husband. A straight and narrow this time. You look wobbly. There's nothing like coffee. And still the stranger stood undecided in the doorway. I'm not very fit, he acknowledged. Not with ladies, but I had to know where I was. Blinking with perplexity, he stared and stared at the faces before him. Um, three thousand miles from home, he worried. I don't know a soul this side of the Sierras. I, I don't know how it happened. Ah, shucks, shrugged young Killingworth. Easiest thing in the world to happen to a stranger in a new town. Welcome to our city. Welcome to our city, from night till morning and morning till night again. Any crowd wants to get started. Crowd? brightened the stranger. I, I was in some sort of, uh, a crowd? He rummaged hopefully through his poor bruised brain. From her concentrated interest in a fried chicken bone, the May girl glanced up with her first evidence of divided attention. Yes! You were, she confided genially. It was at the railroad junction, and when the officer arrived, he said, I hate like the Dickens to run this gentleman in, but if there's nobody to look after him. So I said you belong to me. I saw the crepe on your sleeve, said the May girl. Crepe on my sleeve, stammered the stranger. With a dreadful gesture of incredulity, he lifted his black-banded arm into vision. It was like watching a live heart torn apart to see his memory waken. My God, he gasped. My God! Still wavering, but with a really heroic effort to square his stricken shoulders, he swung back toward the company. His face was livid, his voice barely articulate. Over face and voice lay still that dreadful blight of astonishment. But when he spoke, his statement was starkly simple. I, I buried my wife and unborn child yesterday, he said, in a strange land 
among strangers. I, I, more quickly than I could possibly have imagined it, George Keats was on his feet beckoning the stranger to the place where he himself had just vacated. And with his hands on the stranger's shoulders, he bent down suddenly over him with a curiously twisted little smile. Welcome to our pity, said George Keats. Between Paul Brinswick and his bride, there flashed a sharp glance of terror. It was as though the bride's heart had gasped out. What if I have to die some day, and this day was wasted in rain? I saw young Killingworth flush and turn away from that glance. I saw the May girl open her eyes with a new baffled sort of perplexity. It was then that Rollins came puttering in, grinning like a cheesy cat, with his half-demolished breakfast sliding round rather threateningly on his ill-balanced tray. The strange exultancy of rain was in his eye. I thought I heard voices, he beamed. Merry voices. With mounting excitement, he began to beat tunes with his knife and fork upon the delicate porcelain dome of his toast dish. Am I a king, he began to intone, that I should call my own this... Struck suddenly by the somewhat strained expression of Ann Walter's face, he dropped his knife and fork and fixed his eye upon her for the first time with an unmistakable intentness. How did you break your tooth? beamed Rollins. End of chapter one. Recording by Glenn Coster, Jr.